Uh, whose alarm's that? Oh, you never guess who. It's my alarm. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> As I've said many times before, that's never happened to me before. Is it time to put the icing on the birthday cake? <laughs> it's time to pick up my youngest daughter from uh, um, preschool. It's her first day today, but uh, <laughs> sorry about that. This is Agency Side, telling the stories of starting, growing, and selling digital agencies. Sponsored by Natriller.com, the CRM system for SEOs and digital marketers. Now, here's your host, Rob Carey. This week, I'm joined by two agency founders who I know rather well. In 2009 and 2011, respectively, Carl Hendy and Nick Redding were hired by me as SEO consultants for my old SEO agency. They both left around the end of 2013 and took different paths only to end up back together again in 2017 with their agency, Redico. Nick and Carl, welcome to Agency Side. Hi, Rob. Hi, Rob. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Now, Redico is purely an SEO and PPC agency. Is that right? What would you say is your specialty? Uh, definitely on the uh, SEO side of things. I guess over the last couple of years, we've slowly started to, to grow um, a PPC offering, but the majority of work that, that we do is in the SEO space. And how do you stand out uh, from other agencies with similar size and offering? Um, I would say that the four owners, uh, directors of Redico are all SEOs at heart and we're very much involved in client SEO day-to-day. We are active in the SEO community and I think that's quite rare because a lot of agencies, in particular the larger ones, will often have directors or CEOs of the business that probably have never even run an SEO account or have any idea what it takes to achieve SEO success. So I think that's quite rare um, and unique to us. We still all really love the challenges that SEO brings. And I believe that in the last couple of years, Google's brought more changes to SEO than we've probably seen in the last sort of five to six years. So it's within our kind of hearts. You know, most of us started doing SEO as a hobby. Um, We're now doing it as a career and we still really enjoy doing it. And probably lastly, I'd say that we have a really fantastic client and employee retention rate. Um, We're not a churn and burn agency. Most of our clients have been with us for many, many years. And it looks like your office is based on a farm in the remote English countryside. What made you set up shop there rather than central London? So I think one of the challenges that we had when sort of growing the growing the team was to where to to base the the office. And I think as we started to to hire people around us, it kind of made sense to keep that base in in Kent. And as the demand for office space grew, the opportunity to came up with um, quite a large space on a farm that we just decided to um, to, to go with really, and and take the opportunity to start to grow things out there as more of our our hub. Um, we're now, I guess, in the place where We've kind of gone more towards the the full remote, um, and we've hired people that work for us in in Bristol, in in Glasgow. So um, I guess the the opportunities to, to come and join and work for us aren't, aren't really based on location. It's more just sort of where we started and and where a large portion of the the team team are at the moment. I guess in the past, locating your agency outside of a major capital city would condemn you to only servicing, say, small local businesses. But COVID and the general trend in remote working is starting to change that. Do you feel that an agency's location still matters to some clients? And is there anything stopping an agency from relocating to, say, Bali or the Scottish Highlands and still winning big international clients? Um, I'd say not. 
Uh, I don't really think it's ever been an issue for the majority. There are there are clients that would want you in the office maybe for a lot more FaceTime than other clients. Um, but as Nick mentioned, we've always had kind of a, a fairly open remote working policy. Um, and some of our biggest clients are not located in the UK. We've got clients in the US, Australia, New Zealand, and we've been with them for over five years. And there's probably one one US client I can think of that we've probably only ever been on site about four times with them in the US. So there are also a long-standing clients that we have that we've never met. And that was even before uh, COVID started. Um, obviously, we've not met them since, but it doesn't seem to be an issue. Um, it, you know, occasionally a client might, in the kind of service level agreements, might request that you come to site once a month. But usually after the first few months, that kind of requirement dies off anyway. So I don't really feel like a location of an office really impacts results you could get from SEO if you've got a great team and a good strategy behind yourselves. Yeah, and just to add to that, I just kind of say I wouldn't feel that it's really held us back or um, or even condemn us to uh, to working with small small local businesses. I think over the last sort of six or, or seven years, the fact that we've been in, in London hasn't or not been in London hasn't held back um, hasn't held back our growth. We've managed to attract and work with. Um, some brilliant clients and it's not just us as well there's a lot of agencies in and around Kent and and Sussex that that have done the same without a base in London Um, we've got clients that we work with that are based in London and we travel in as as and when is needed I don't recall us ever sort of getting any feedback or or sort of not winning a pitch on the basis of us not being um, or not having a a location in, in London and I think that's going to get even easier as we as we go forward. Like you said, post COVID, I think the the conversations, the especially from a new business point of view, are sort of been more remote at the moment. The the, the relationships with, with clients they are much more uh, flexible in in terms of that. And I think coming out of, of COVID, I think there'll be less of a demand to to have a a physical location or a base um, suited in a in a particular town. I think there's always been controversy and stigma in the digital marketing industry around agencies outsourcing their work to cheaper countries or cheaper companies. I know that one UK-based PPC agency even outsourced to prisoners to manage their clients' Google AdWords campaigns. Uh, If remote working and remote agencies become the norm, do you think that you'll see clients looking further afield for their next agency, putting pressure on everyone's rate card and profits? I guess I'm asking... If big name agencies are already outsourcing a bulk of their client work, and I know that you don't, their only value left really is the fancy office full of account managers that can't even meet the clients at the moment. So why would a client not just go direct to the talent or look further afield or demand much lower rates from their current agency? Um, I think in most cases, people kind of, well, clients will pay what they want to pay regardless of your location. It's kind of down to the agency or the consultant to demonstrate their value and justify their fees. Um, As when I was a solo consultant, you'd often see requests come in on LinkedIn for people looking or brands looking for consultants and not agencies expecting a cheaper alternative. Whereas I know that some of the consultants that work alone, they charge their day rates are far greater than agency rates. Um, so I, I think it comes down to 
we'll probably go full circle and it'll be more of a case of looking at what the client needs and whether the agency or consultant can fit those requirements because some brands kind of they really underestimate what they require or what they need from an SEO perspective um, do they need lots more handholding do they need training more FaceTime is it just an action list that they want and sometimes those different requirements don't fit the agency model or sometimes they don't fit the consultant model um, and everyone's rates in the industry are very different. So um, I don't really see a change going further afield, but it would just be more of a case of making sure that maybe educating the buyers of SEO more towards what they require and what they're looking for and pointing them in the right direction. And there's there's always loads of work to go around for everyone. So whether you're a consultant, whether you're an agency, whether you're an expensive agency or a cheap agency or cheaper agency, There's plenty of work to go around for everyone. There are a couple of larger agencies in the industry that are very open about outsourcing work to freelancers um, and have been very successful in that message. And I think that's how they've kind of educated during the pitch process uh, how valuable freelancers in their network might be to achieving the goal that the client requires at that point. I think for me, like the, the biggest shift that, that I've seen with, with the thinking um, around this is not necessarily outsourcing to freelancers or to, to alternatives or, or cheap alternatives. The trend that I've seen that I think has evolved for the better is where agencies, are, for me, are moving away from this thinking of having to, to white label or having to offer all services to, to their clients and more towards partnerships and, and collaboration there's more conversations that i'm having as to how can we bring you into our clients as a seo specialist provider rather than um we want to sell seo services to our clients and then get you guys to do it under under the white label and i think that's kind of an acceptance on on both sides really that the client now no longer seeing that as a vulnerability in the agency that they've chosen, but but more in a strength in able to bring in a, a specialised partner that can actually serve their goals and serve what they want to uh, achieve rather than it just being a, you have to be a, a full service or when you're not seen as the right partner for us. And the conversations that, that we're starting to have now are um, people looking for to bring in specialist partners to work more together on, on clients and client projects, which I think is a is a great way forward. I'd like to touch on both your backgrounds quickly. Carl, I believe you skipped university like I did, moving into the world of IT and servers. What jobs did you do before SEO and how did you learn about search engine optimization to the point where it became a career for you? I did start university and I dropped out because I didn't like it. I found it boring, but I was doing uh, computer science and programming at the time and just felt it wasn't right for me. So uh, I think I left after about seven months Um, It was during that time where I was very fortunate, um, a a friend of mine, his dad was throwing out um, an old PC. It was a Compaq 386 Presario, I think, Um, and uh, he kindly gave that to me and I set it all up with kind of Windows 3.1 and I learned some basic coding, which is fairly ironic because that was one of the reasons why I dropped out of uni, but um, for some reason, I liked sitting there on my own and learning how to code. And that developed into understanding computers more, you know, buying hardware, putting hardware into the machine. Um, I did some exams via the CompTIA computer networking course. 
And once I understood computer networks more, I got involved in hacking and trying to understand how to do things that I probably shouldn't be learning how to do on a computer. Um, and during that phase, the web started to kind of tick along in the background and there was kind of various versions of the web. Um, but I started building websites using very simple HTML and CSS. And once I had those websites live, you know, the challenge was, well, how do I bring traffic to those websites? And then when I learned how to bring traffic to a website, I was learning how to make money from those websites. And it was kind of all going really well and I was enjoying it. And um, it was a, a hobby at the time. And, you know, Google was very new and there was, there was a, a quite a few other search engines around at that point. Um, but I took a job in London working at a large trading platform um, where I was looking after servers and desktop machines and Blackberries at the time. And, you know, th these servers were very kind of critical to uh, a large part of what was going on via the global trading platform. And I think we were doing about $700 billion a day in transactions, which at the time was more more than Amazon and eBay combined on a daily basis. So, you know, it was pretty kind of daunting stuff looking after these servers. Um, but whilst I was looking after, you know, people's computers, laptops, and managing these web servers, um, I kind of realized that my hobby and interest lied still within, you know, search engine optimization. How can I send even more traffic to make me even more money at that point in time? And that's where I started looking for jobs in SEO because at the time it wasn't particularly, it wasn't really a marketing channel and there weren't many um, agencies around at that point. But I got a job at an agency in Essex called Coast Digital and coincidentally they were acquired last week. So I just want to say well done to everyone at Coast Digital, fully deserved. Um, I know those guys work really hard there and have a great set of clients and it was kind of from there, I worked there for a bit and then I got a job up in London. I wanted to work with kind of more technology driven agencies. So I got a job up in London and worked for a couple of agencies there. And Nick, you took a different route that's actually quite similar to Paddy Moogan at ERA, who we spoke to on a previous episode. You graduated with a law degree from Kent University and then joined the legal team of EA or Electronic Arts, the video game producer. How did you find your way into SEO from there? Yeah, so after uh, leaving university, I worked for EA for about a year. And the idea of that was to get some experience and then go and do um, a training contract at a solicitor's firm. But I guess after spending a year and working quite closely with the team, I kind of came to the conclusion that I just didn't want to be reading legal contracts back and forth for, um, for the next 20 years. So um, I guess I started thinking about what it is that I would want to do next. And I, I kind of came back to the, um, I guess, what I was doing at, at university, which was kind of just um, creating affiliate sites, um, getting them to, to rank on, on Google. And at the time, I just saw that as a bit of a income generation for, um, for my time at uni and, and nothing kind of further than that. Um, and that kind of sparked my interest around, or maybe I just need to get a better idea of, of marketing as a whole and the different options. So I started working at a local marketing company down in Ashford. 
Um, we looked at um, SEO, PPC, social, um, a bit of web build. Um, and so I got a bit of exposure there to different potential areas. It was still kind of drawn to, to SEO. Um, I was still kind of working on some affiliate projects and side projects at, at the time. And that's when I thought, actually, um, if I that's a, it's an area that I kind of want to go into and I probably need to commit to, to finding a, uh, a specialist that, that I can I can learn from and, and really develop my skills. And I guess that's kind of when um, I found my way into London and, and to IEMA. Now, IEMA is an agency that I co-founded back in 2007, which is still going strong today and floated on the NASDAQ First North back in 2018. And I left shortly after that. And I think, Carl, you were my fourth or fifth hire. And Nick joined a few years later in 2011. I think that this was the first time either of you had worked at a London-based agency. Are there lessons that you learned in your four years at IEMA, either about SEO or running an agency, that have stayed with you? Yeah, I guess there is. Because the industry is always changing, especially I mentioned earlier about how how many changes there's been in Google within the last few years, um, is to, to not get complacent. It's all well and good being able to kind of, you know, have your moment of fame winning some awards or picking up a handful of new clients. Um, you know, you might you might have a really good reputation, so you're you're, you're not organically picking up clients without having to put too much effort in, and that is all great. You know, it's really fantastic that you can have that flexibility, but not to get complacent in that. And don't let, you know, don't let your client accounts become stagnant. Don't let your knowledge become stagnant. Don't let your technology become stagnant because, you know, you've got to remember that your clients probably get, you know, five, 10 emails a day from other agencies that are trying to poach, you know, your clients for, for that business. And, you know, if you're not keeping it fresh with your clients and coming up with new ideas or, um, you know, making their lives easier, then, you know, you, you could end up losing clients fairly quickly because you don't want to end up being one of those kind of churn and burn agencies. So I guess the, you know, it's looking after your clients, solve problems for them because as SEOs, we tend to get our heads really stuck into the kind of the detail and the technical side of SEO and you know, the analytics and the numbers. However, on on the flip side, for most, most big clients, the issues aren't technical issues. They are people issues. And how do you solve those people issues for your clients? You know, find out more about the challenges that they have with inside their business, because then you're able to, you know, offer that support there, as well as just being a kind of technical resource or a Q&A resource for them. So yeah, understanding the problems your clients have internally, um, always keep engaged within the community. You know, it's all well and good if you're, you know, building your own technology or you've got a really great reputation and you're smashing results for clients. That's great. But the SEO community, you know, is a really great community and it, they share a lot. There's lots of new content always being published, new case studies. There's lots of different data sources and kind of, you know, engaging with that community will, you know, offer rewards in return. And I guess lastly, you know, encourage lots of sharing within the team. Um, We can all get kind of bogged down into client work and day-to-day, you know, answering emails, putting reports together, you know, running audits, all of that. But it's really important that the team shares their knowledge, especially when new people come on board or if you've got junior members of the team that are looking to, you know, increase their learning. Um, not everyone is 
quite as vocal as each other in say asking for help. So kind of making sure that the team is very transparent in what's going on with other clients, you know, sharing stuff that's worked, what hasn't worked, um, you know, even to the extent of ensuring that if you're building your own technology in-house, get the whole team involved, get their input, make them feel part of what's going on within the agency. I guess for me, uh, I, I owe a lot to um, a lot to Aima and, and kind of what I learned, what I learned there. Um, it definitely set me on on the path to to where I am today. And I guess for me, when I when I left um, sort of the, the marketing agency in Ashford and, and went into London, Aima was kind of like the right place for me to go at, at the right time. I, I wanted to learn, and I was surrounded. For me, I was surrounded by. Um, some of the, the the smartest people um, in, in the industry, and that and that's kind of where I I wanted to be. Um, Aima had its own its own technology that it was constantly looking to um, improve and and invest in, and I was just there to to be able to, to to learn from from people around me. And I think over over the four years that that kind of enabled me to have the foundation in terms of not just knowledge, but how to to keep keep improving, to keep learning. Um, to to able to go off and and start um, to start my own uh, agency at the time, and I think in terms of like the lessons learned um, that I guess I look back on and kind of reflect on, there's definitely a few that kind of stand out. I think um, looking after looking after the team and, and trying to build relationships within within the team, I think is 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 really important, and that it's not just about work; it's about how you connect, how you talk to each other, like the relationships and, and how you form that and, and the trust that, that you form. I think it's been able to um, keep on top of the, the knowledge, what's going on in the industry and pushing yourself forwards, not getting too stuck into client work and giving yourself that time to develop, to push yourself and to keep um, abreast of everything that's, that's happening outside of, of day to day so that you can then deliver better analysis, better recommendations uh, to clients. Um, and I think I just kind of echo what what Carl said as well about just building relationships with clients and helping solve their challenges and what you can get, um, what you can help them do to push through those. How can you make it as easy as possible to get your recommendations through, whether that's simplifying, whether that's getting buy-in from, um, from senior management, whether that's doing initial trials or tests uh, to start with. It's whatever you can do to, um, to get that, that trust with, with the client that what you're recommending is the right approach um, to go down. And I think as, as we've kind of grown our, our agency, one of the, the, the biggest things for us is kind of like trust and, um, and transparency. Um, and we're very open with with the team. We have um, open P and Ls, and the team kind of know exactly where the business is, where the business is heading, where what the targets are, and kind of what we want to achieve. And I kind of feel that the more the more you can give to to people, the more knowledge you can share about where the business at is, where it's going, good or bad. The the better they are informed, and the better they can help you um, along that along that journey. And you both left AIMA around the same sort of time in around 2013 with Nick starting up Bredico uh, with his brother Luke and Carl. You led the SEO for a multinational agency called Ford3D for a while, then became a freelance consultant, even living in Australia for a while before then joining Nick. Was this the first time in both your careers that you were 100% responsible for your own income? And were those first few years scary or challenging at all? It was at at the time, actually. So uh, Luke... Le- uh, my brother left first um he kind of for the first 
think four to five months, and then I joined him. Um, I joined him after in terms of um, starting starting Redico, and it, it was that it was the first time um, been been responsible. We just um, my wife and I had just bought a flat at the time as well, um, and it was the first time we'd taken on uh, a mortgage. So we're at the, we're at that point where I was kind of saying to her, yeah, I kind of need to go and try and do my own thing, um, and me and Luke are going to go and see if we can make it work, um, which is an interesting conversation. But she was fully supportive. She'd known that I've always wanted to um, to do my own thing, and that it was it was going to happen at, at some point. And I think for me, it's, it really comes down to um, a, a mindset question. And it's once you've there's a there's a lot in the build up to making the decision because there's it's a big change and there's a lot to consider and then once you've made that decision that the mindset really shifts from like can I can I do this to how am I going to do this and how am I going to make that work and it's a very big shift in, in in mindset but once the decision's been made you're just focused on okay um, clients growth what we're going to do for for next month all those kinds of things that you need to just keep building the business like we didn't take any outside investment um we didn't have necessarily three or four clients like ready lined up that i know that people that have started agencies in, in the past so it really was starting everything from um from scratch i took a slightly different path i went traveling i think within about a week of realizing that i was going to be a solo consultant i booked my tickets with my girlfriend and we went traveling for just over a year around the world. And I didn't tell um, any clients at the time that I was wherever I was, whether it was in Asia or Australia, um, because one, they didn't ask and two, uh, it, it didn't really matter in terms of, you know, how we communicated day to day. And also I was kind of a bit, I was kind of interested in a kind of social experiment to see if, if it, it did make a difference to the way that um, I had the output of work that I was doing or the communication that we was having with the client. Um, and, you know, no one, no one ever knew. I think the only time I got kind of caught out a little bit was when I was in Malaysia and there was a monsoon and it was just did not stop raining. And I couldn't hide the fact that I was sitting outside trying to get Wi-Fi in a, in a monsoon. So uh, I kind of got busted in that respect, but um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it doesn't, it wasn't really scary for me. You know, I had the, you know, flexibility of having some savings to go away with. I didn't have any commitment to getting new clients. Um, I, I, from memory, I believe I already had a couple of clients, which I think would have helped at the time. Um, and if you do a great job and, you know, the clients are happy, Word spreads quite quickly through this industry. SEO is still a very small industry, um, and that good work gets passed on to, to other brands, to other stakeholders, um, and you know eventually they'll they'll get in touch. Moving back to something which Nick just mentioned before, I get the feeling that it takes a certain type of personality to be able to survive as a freelancer or agency founder. There's some fantastic digital marketers working in house and leading agencies. But what do you think it takes to make that leap into self-employment and to survive? Uh, I'll tackle this from the kind of solo perspective, really, because um, there are yeah there are loads of great SEO consultants about, and some of them do attempt to kind of go it alone. And you know, technically, and um, the, the work that they do is great. However, a lot of them kind of fail mainly because they realise that they preferred working in a team or having interaction with people day to day and that 
that's kind of just based on people that I've spoken to that have have gone solo and then decided to move back into you know full time employment or or starting something a little bit bigger and growing their own agency. Um, but when you're you're, you're solo, I, I'd always recommend building up a network. It doesn't need to be a, a huge network. You don't need to be attending all of the kind of after parties and conferences and joining every single webinar there is. But you know, building up a small, very focused network would allow you to, you know, have that option to talk to someone day to day if you need to, or arrange that weekly call. You know, COVID's kind of broken the ice with video conferencing. You know, even though I've always had clients that I've spoken to over uh, Google Hangout or you know over the phone. It never once would we ever jump on video, but now everyone jumps on video. So there's there are other ways now to kind of engage day to day. And there are Slack groups that you could join that are kind of set up for in-house SEOs or, you know, remoters. Alada Solis has a great remoters website that have got tons of people from the community on there that you could speak to that are in the same situation. Um, and, you know, probably pre-COVID, you could arrange local meetups. So um, you don't need to be trekking into a major city or flying, you know, halfway across the world to attend an event. There's always lots of digital marketing people, paid search, you know, web designers. It doesn't necessarily have to be another SEO consultant, um, you know, arrange those local meetups. And lastly, I would recommend if you were going to become a solo consultant, and you have the opportunity to do so, I would go and travel, work around the world and go and meet SEOs in other countries, go and meet other potential clients in other countries and expand your network that way. And it's a lot more interesting than being stuck in your home day to day. Nick, Redico has grown from just you and your brother to over 30 people. Were there any particular big client wins that accelerated your growth over the past seven years? And was this mostly through providing SEO services or did PPC and paid social become a sizable part of your work? That's an interesting question. I guess um, for me, looking at where we've come over the years, it's only recently that we've started to look um, at paid search as an additional, additional revenue stream sort of in the last couple of years. So in the early years, it was very much focused on on SEO. I would probably say eighty five percent of of the work that, that we do is through through SEO um, and link building. Uh, that's our that's our core um, our core revenue stream, and and that's probably been consistent, um, especially in the early days, in, in the first few years of getting started. In terms of any particular big client wins that accelerate the growth, there's probably one group um, that I look back on and think was probably a step change for us in terms of. The opportunity that, that came out of that and that would be direct line and, and direct line group we initially were, were engaged through through a trial and we then over the over the last few years and the results that we've got we, we've kind of got more and more into into that group working with different brands and different projects over the course of, of the last four years with them and at, at one point we were looking after four different sort of brands um, or product lines um, for the group as a as a whole so that for us was was definitely a, a step change along along the way and Carl you became a co-owner and effectively co-founder of Redico and had worked with Redico for a few years before that as well is it easier to win new business as an agency than as a freelance consultant and does it open any doors which are closed to freelancers yeah good question um 
the there is plenty of work for everyone, whether you're a solo consultant or an agency, no matter what size agency you are. And you kind of always have to deal with the fact that you're not going to win every single pitch you attend. But the main difference for me would be from a new biz perspective that you, although I'm getting the same clients talking to the same sort of size companies, brands, um, type of work, um, the main difference is as an agency, you're expected to kind of put all the bells and whistles on, on, a, on a pitch deck um, and have a lot more information. Forecasting is always a requirement with a, an agency pitch. Um, you go into a lot more detail than you would if you were a solo consultant. So as a, as a solo consultant, I might get away with having a couple of face-to-face meetings and just provide a one or two page, a more concise proposal about what we're planning to do and how we're going to get to the goal that's, that is required from the client. Um, and I think that's kind of the main difference from, from my perspective and the experience that I've had. When I was working in Australia, I found that the big corporations still prefer a large named super agency. You know, if you look at the UK and US from an SEO perspective, that's a kind of slightly dated view on the industry. And I do expect that over a period of time that the requirement from an SEO perspective for a big agency will probably be dampened and they'll look for the the, uh, brands in Australia will look for more specialist or smaller agencies rather than being bolted onto a big paid media campaign that this super agency has sold. But I guess the other one thing that I do remember quite fondly and have nightmares about is when you're a solo consultant, you'll often get passed into the procurement process without the procurement team being aware that you're a solo consultant or you work, you know, you work on your own. The procurement teams are more used to dealing with, you know, large agencies and providing lots more information. So as a solo consultant, I used to get quite a lot of scrutiny over things like fees and uh, my redundancy if I was to become ill or how do I manage such a large scope of work. And, you know, there are answers that you can provide and, you know, you, you can get through that process. But as a solo consultant, it can be a bit more daunting when dealing with, you know, billion dollar procurement companies. Redico's 2019 financials were published in June this year and showed a healthy profit when many UK agencies were suffering from financial losses. Is there something that Redico's business model that makes it more profitable and resilient against the economic and industry downturns, do you think? Every year since we've, we've started, uh, we've been pro- profitable as an agency. Um, we haven't really taken uh, or we haven't taken any outside um, investment in terms of, in terms of growth. Um, it's just been, uh, I guess, steady growth focusing. Really, just had our uh, heads heads down um, for a large part of the, the last sort of seven years, just focusing on delivering work, building up relationships with with clients, and and trying to grow that that, that client base. I think from a from a financial point of view, we we're very much focused on uh, ensuring financial stability of of the business and providing that level of transparency to, to the team so that they have trust and confidence in that when we grow that there is a uh, financial plan behind it we, we typically have around six months overheads um, in in the bank it's something that we refer to as our new zero 
So that then becomes point zero, and anything else um, uh, sort of moves on from from there. And the idea is that if if everything went went wrong um, and we lost all our clients, then we'd have kind of six months worth of, of overheads to kind of keep the the business and, and the team functional for us to able to uh, to turn it around. I wouldn't say there's anything specific. I think I would I'd point it to uh, to a point that Carl made earlier around having sort of people that that are running the business that are focused and dedicated and passionate about um, SEO and helping to to drive that forward and attracting people, like-minded people that kind of feel the same and want to deliver great work to to clients. That six-month buffer is a really good idea and a great tip for many founders out there because it's very tempting, you know, as soon as you make a profit to just take that straight out of the company. But then having that money in there for a rainy day can be really significant for you going forward. I know there's different measures as to different business advisors may suggest uh, um, that the, the money should be used more effectively, should be used more for, for growth. But I think like COVID has kind of shown really that you have to kind of prepare for the unexpected. And I think for, for us and for me in particular, having six months as opposed to two or three months um, just makes me sleep a lot easier at night knowing that the reality is that we may lose half clients. It's, un, it's a very unlikely scenario that we'd lose all clients. So um, we'd at least have like a year, 18 months of, of current running costs to be able to turn things, turn things around. And I just, I just feel more comfortable running a business, taking on more people. I'm responsible essentially in the day for 30 other people's mortgages, rents, salaries, those kinds of things. So um, I kind of want to be sure that as, as we grow that we, we protect that. And all of the clients mentioned on Redico's website appear to be based in the UK. How international is your client base and do you envisage a US or Australian or another international office opening next year? The website at the moment is currently being rebuilt, um, should be live by the end of the year. So the information on there is a little bit stagnant, but the new website will have loads more detail about who we are as an agency, the kind of clients that we work with. There'll be new case studies. There'll be details about the more eco environmental impact that the agency is having as well and all of the the good charity work that we do and also a bit more about the technology that we're building in-house. We do have clients in the US, uh, West Coast, East Coast, and we have a couple in Australia and uh, New Zealand and we have a a few more dotted over the place, um, just not detailed on the current website. Someone that's lived in Australia and New Zealand, you know, one day I'd love to go back. So if there was ever an opportunity to open an overseas office you know that would be my my first selfish uh choice but at the moment there is kind of no real discussion um about opening offices in any other location we do have uh, nick mentioned earlier we do have team members dotted around the, the globe and we we had one last week who um is off on an immigration trip to canada so you know there will be we do have kind of round-the-clock support for clients if required, um, but at the moment there isn't any discussions on a, a new location for an office. Yeah, I think for me on this, Carl's, Carl's covered it quite well. Um, we have a kind of work-from-anywhere policy, um, which kind of says that um, pretty much um, providing that you can continue to, to do 
and to do your job and to support the team and to help the company move forward, then it kind of doesn't really matter what location that, that you're in. Um, and uh, Carl mentioned Simon moved to, um, to Canada um, and he'll continue to support um, the, the content team from, from there. So I think there's no immediate plans to, to open additional offices. For, for me, um, it's, it's not something that I would necessarily rule out from, from my side. And it comes, it's the same question that we have about, I guess, why haven't we opened up a, an office in, in, in central London is that at the moment we, we kind of don't, don't need to. Like we're, we're growing at the rate that, that we are. Um, and we're attracting and working with clients in Australia, in, in the US, the clients that are in London, clients that are in the UK, without having to have fixed bases there. Um, and from a finance point of view, you have to look at that model and say it's a large amount of cost to, to, to bring into, to, into the company um, with, without, um, I guess, unless you've got the security around signing those, those contracts with, with those clients that are out there. But I kind of feel with the model that we have, the flexibility in the team, that we can, we can service clients wherever they are without necessarily having a fixed location there. And I think that's going to become more, um, just more accepted by clients um, as we start coming out the other side of COVID. And for us, we kind of run a really quite flexible and open approach to work. So we don't have any set working days. We don't have any set working hours. We don't have any limitation on leave. We don't have any fixed days on, on sickness. The, the, the whole ethos is just what can we do to build a company that enables people to, to work at their best? And that's what the question is. We've recently just introduced a work from home budget and there's there's no cap. There's no financial cap. Like the idea is to kind of say, look, order what you need um, to to set up your home environment to to work at you work at your best, um, and I think that kind of trust and, and level of responsibility is just what we want sort of flowing through through the company, and that means that if people want to go abroad and they want to work somewhere or they want to kind of travel and work, then as long as they are getting getting the work done, they are supporting the clients and they're helping the company move forward, then it's more about input than it is about number of days or hours that someone works in in a week which is just traditional input model um what do you think the future holds for redico in two years five years and ten years time uh, it's, it's a really interesting question um and i think um for me it's looking at one of, one of the challenges that i have kind of at, at the moment is how we align what we do to a wider impact or a bigger purpose and that's something that I'm looking at actually this quarter as as one of my own sort of ob- objectives or, or key results as, as we call them for, for this quarter to kind of look at actually if we were to step away at some point in in the future then what what is what does the the company stand for how does it continue to to, to make an impact and for me I kind of want to to look back in like 10, 15, 20 years and for and for Redico to still be running with the same same ethos, the same thought process, the same uh, impact and be able to point to, to projects that Redico were either involved in or Redico started in the local community that have actually that have actually made a difference. And for me it becomes a question of what do you want to set up, what do you want to, to leave and, and how do you want how do you want people to, to carry that forward? Um, and so there isn't a necessary point where I say in 10 years time, I, I want to have um, generated X in terms of, of revenue. And I think the interesting question becomes like, what when you look back, what impact do you want to have? And 
for for me, like a lot of companies see, uh, I guess, impact or, or charity as kind of like a byproduct of what they do. Um, you you have to you make money and you make profit first, and then you kind of give to a few causes, uh, causes or you kind of plant a few trees to offset your your carbon footprint. And I kind of and that's what that's what we do at the moment. And we've come a long way from from where we were a few years ago. But um, I kind of want to push that further. Um, and look at actually or outside of just giving money to, to, to charities um, and what else can we do? Like how else do we want to, to think about these years when we and, and the impact that, that we make? Are you thinking about in the future maybe selling the company or floating the company in an IPO? Or as Nick, you were saying, Paul, maybe taking a backseat to shareholders and becoming a member of the board and letting someone else uh, run the company for you? Yeah, again, it, it kind of loosely, my answer is going to be loosely related to, um, to, to the question before, but I'll try and um, direct it a little bit more specifically. In terms of an end game for, for Redico, in, in, ter- in such that for me, I kind of, um, there may be periods where um, like people and and people in the team sort of come and come and go. Like we understand that uh, that not everyone's going to be at, at Redico for for life. We we obviously we, we would love them to be part of part of that journey. Um, and and same and same for us. We look at it and it'd be like we in in the future. What does Redico look like kind of without us? Um, and for us, it's kind of I guess. As as a parent, you always want to you always want your ch- children to to outlive you, um, and it's a little bit the same with, with the company. Is like you kind of want the next step for, for for the company beyond you, and what does that look like, and how do you how do you structure that? There's been no discussions around sort of floating the company or or IPOs. That's it doesn't quite feel that we're we're even close to having that, or that it would even align to our thinking and our culture and our, our way of, of running the, the company. It's more likely that as and and we've started to to do this already actually. That as the company's grown, we've started to be able to step away a little bit in, in some of our roles from the day to day and looking more strategically and looking more further ahead. And I think as we grow towards 40, 50 people and get more of the right people in the right seats, we'll, we'll be able to, to do that. Um, and I think anything that we do in the future will be how, how, do we, how do we enable the team to carry the company forward? Now, my last question, if you could give a new agency founder one piece of advice, what would it be? I've got. I've definitely got a couple of lessons learned that, that I can I can share on on stuff. I think the first one for me would be um, would be self self awareness, and what, what I mean by that is kind of understanding if you kind of want to grow an agency and become a, a business owner, or whether you kind of want to be a sort of a freelancer or a small business small business owner where it's predominantly you doing the work and there's there's a challenge there and there's a shift there in kinds of mindset and letting go and and enabling those around you but i think very early on like myself and luke understanding each other and the difference in in our roles and what what we would bring to to the company so for me my periods at aima is very sort of technical and strategic in terms of delivery whereas luke was very much focused on the client relationship uh, and and the sales and kind of plotting that what that looks like when when you're starting the company and being aware of each other's strengths and weaknesses and what roles that you, you do I think when you start up there can be 
um, you have to wear many hats, but you need to be clear on, on what those those are and what the differences are between you and other people in the team. I think so in terms of lessons learned, I kind of put like you will make mistakes and that's kind of that's kind of okay everyone does and that's kind of where you learn the most i think that the biggest thing that i've probably learned over the last 3 or 4 years is the actually like as as a leader you don't have all the answers and that's kind of okay i think there's a lot of pressure when you're leading a company or running a company to to always have the right answer or to to always have an answer and, and I think what I've learned is actually that you get sort of there's more strength in actually being able to admit that, that you don't know and that you actually need the input from the team or more often than not, the team come up with with better answers or better ideas than, than you did. So I think that one um, clear roles and responsibilities for, for everyone within the company as you take someone on, but also whoever you're starting up with and just sort of getting mentorship and, and support from from people that are going where you want to be so if you're starting out then speak to someone that runs a half million pound agency and then when you get to that point speak to someone that runs a million and a half pound agency and so on you need someone with that outside perspective who is already at where you want to be to be able to look in and kind of tell you what you don't know um and i think those are the things that kind of stand out for, for me over the last sort of three or four years. Nick and Carl, thank you so much for joining me on Agency Side. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. Thank you for listening to Agency Side, sponsored by Netthriller.com. Visit agencyside.fm to subscribe, read the show notes, and listen to previous recordings. Tune in again soon for our next episode.